Unintended harm. Our governmental and educational system is the subject of Dr. Hunter's message as he continues in his preaching series on thriving in the world. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter will be reading from Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 19, and it reads as follows. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. Now, we invite you to join us for Dr. Joel Hunter as he brings us his message, Unintended Harm, Our Governmental and Educational Systems. In our third year of a ten-year journey towards spiritual maturity, we're talking about how God grows spiritual maturity through adversity. And in this particular part of the year, we're talking about the adversity that comes while living in a culture whose trends and values are almost directly opposite of the absolutes of Jesus Christ. And they are growing more that way every day. Today, we want to talk about a subtle form of tyranny. Today, we want to talk about relying upon institutions instead of relying upon God. We want to take you to a possible hospital visit 20, 30 years from now. And we want to show you in this visit a trend. A trend that is essentially this. What is necessary to help a few can be attractive and habit-forming for many and then progress to be addictive and disabling for most. Listen. Nancy? Congratulations, honey. And I stopped by the baby room and saw your baby. She is adorable. Now, the last time that I saw you, you and Clark were still arguing over who the baby was going to be named after, Nancy or Clark. So, (laughs) what's her name? Clancy. (laughs) Well, we compromised. (laughs) Listen, Barbara, I am so glad you stopped by. I've been thinking about you, and I don't know how you've done this four times. <laughs> I mean, I start crying just thinking about the diapers. How do you manage diapers? <laughs> it's really nothing. I'll give you the number for my diaper service. They're great. Oh, yeah, that would help. <laughs> I just feel so overwhelmed at the thought of actually taking care of another human being. I mean, I should have watched my mom more carefully. <laughs> but... Don't worry about it, sweetheart. You'll get it all together. Well, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, how you arranged your days after the baby was born? You know, I don't have a clue. I mean, what time do you have to to get up? And how often do they eat? And, you know, all the obvious questions. Nancy, haven't I told you about 21st century daycare yet? No. Oh, my gosh. They are the best. And they've been in operation since 1999, so you know they're well-established. 
I send Josh and Samantha there at 8.30 in the morning. Then I have an optional lunch at 11.30. There's optional parent playtime at 3.30 and optional dinner at 5.30. I just let them know in advance if I'm going to be able to make one of those times. And then, of course, there's optional pickup time at 7.30 p.m. Optional pickup time? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you just let them know if you're going to be taking your child home with you that night at dinner time. You see, that way, if you're having guests over or if you have to work late, then the daycare becomes a night care. Oh. It's, uh, it's a little extra, but they're excellent. Oh. And, of course, I, I completely checked it out beforehand. Well, how do you know when to switch from just milk to baby food? 21st Century Daycare sent me a form. They're extremely conscientious about that kind of thing. Now, they would never do that without your prior knowledge and consent, of course. You know, I remember my mom saying that one of her biggest thrills was when I took my first step. You know, Barbara, I don't know if I'm going to be able to let go of Clancy long enough to let her walk on her own. I mean, she looks so fragile and everything. But what a thrill it must be to see that. It is. Oh, it is. When Todd and I saw the video of Josh's first steps. (laughs) We just made an entire night of it. We brought Josh home. We made popcorn. Oh, it was so wonderful. Of course, he's growing up so fast now. He's already in the second grade and learning French and Swahili. Swahili? You're kidding. No. The daycare really promotes a, a more global way of thinking. They want the children to embrace all of the cultures of the world. You know, he, he learns a different religion every single month. He knows more about all that stuff than I do. <laughs> Last week, he learned an Inuit worship song. You know, Eskimos? Oh, it was beautiful. no no. Of course, I, I wouldn't let him pierce his nose. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, do you take him to your church? Well, that's not encouraged. You see, they want the children to have tolerance for all faiths and at the developing stages of their life. And that way, when they get old enough, they can choose a religion. You see, they, they feel that Christianity is just a little too intolerant. Well, for a youngster to be exposed to. It's, um, it's exclusive. And, and, and they promote a more, a more open way of thinking. It's visiting hours, Nancy. Oh, Here's Clark. Look, give me a call if you need anything, okay? Turn with me to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. As we develop the 
the theme. What is needful for a few can be attractive and habit-forming for many and can progress to be addictive and disabling for most. This comes at a time in Jesus' ministry where he has just trained his disciples and he is sending them out. And he is sending them out to be independent ministers. He's saying to them, don't ask for anything. He says in Matthew 10:28, just as you have freely received, freely give. And then he looks down the ages, down the corridor of time, looks beyond the immediate ministry they will have, and he makes this prophecy. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now let me just take a second to explain that to you because that's the, that's the germinal thought here. Shrewd, uh, front of my, means, a friend comes from mind, it means use your mind in such a way that you're thinking through the consequences of what you do. Think long term. There is a reference to, of course, the serpent in the garden. And even though what he did was evil, certainly the consequences lasted eternally. He said, have in your mind the consequences you want and act according to the long term. And then he says, be innocent as doves. Now, the Greek here, means to be unmixed, to be focused, to be uh, um, have your attention toward one thing and not to be mixed up with other things. In other words, what he is saying here is, as you're going out, do the things that will last the longest and resist cutting a deal with the world. Don't cut a deal with the world. Don't get what they can give you and think that they can answer your needs. Be innocent. Be ignorant of those things of the world that could bind you up. Now, he goes on to say, but beware of men. Why? I'll tell you in a minute. For they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak. For it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. Let me read the next one also. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. You see, these people who are talking have a deposit in them from whom they speak, on whom they depend. Now, what does this have to do with 20th century Christianity? I see the reversal of the Christian character in this century, especially in these days. To be quite honest with you, I don't see much difference between the way Christians depend upon government and the way everybody else depends on government. I don't see much difference 
in the way Christians live their lives and the way other people live their lives, Christians are always looking to cut a deal also. You know, in the early days of this country, Alex de Tocqueville, who wrote Democracy in America, one of the classics, he was a French uh, sociologist who came over in the 1830s, 1840s, to observe American culture, one of the first independent commentators on American culture. And he wrote this about American culture. He said, you know, while religion takes no direct part in government, it still is to be regarded as the first institution of government. He said, because how, listen to this question, How can a society be free from destruction who does not strengthen its moral ties in proportion to relaxing its political ties? Do you see the teeter-totter there? Do you see the negative correlation? He said, how can a society escape destruction unless it strengthens its moral ties as it relaxes its political ties. There is a governing of our lives. And there's a negative correlation. We are either governed by God and therefore not needing so much secular government, or we're not governed by God and therefore needing huge secular government. Is there any doubt in your mind where we are today? How that proportion is going today? And really, the ironic thing about this is that we know better. We know better. I mean, Jesus said to us, he said, you can't serve two masters. You know, either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be close to one, you'll do... And he said, you can't serve God, now listen to this, and mammon, money. In other words, he said, I know the temptation that's going to be for you to cut a deal. You're going to cut a deal on the basis of what benefits you can get. But you can't serve God money. You can only surrender your life one time. Or you should only surrender your life one time. If you surrender it more than once, Christian, then you're worshiping other gods. And I have already told you, you'll have no other gods before me. You know, in this era of government expansion of government power in our lives. I want to get this straight. First of all, I'm not against government. I think government's necessary. And I am glad for the government that we have that will guard us in national defense and will control civil affairs and and will minister to the poor. I'm glad for a government. I want to give money to poor people who are not as fortunate as I. I want for them not to starve. The problem is this, as Chuck Colson states, only 2% of federal spending goes to the poor. Listen to this. 80% of the entitlement programs in this country go to the middle class and the rich. 80%. That's not a matter of need. That's a matter of greed. That's because people won't take responsibility for their own lives. That's because people are looking for a handout. That's because we're cutting a deal. And we continue to watch the country go down the tubes 
griping all the way, we continue to know that government's not... I mean, how many times does government have to prove its inefficiency to us? How many times? I mean, you know, somebody quoted me something they read the other day. They said, in the last, I forget how many years, 20 years, 30 years, this country has spent $6.5 trillion trying to help people out financially. Now, the article said that for that amount of money, we could have purchased every Fortune 500 company in this country and every acre of farmland and given it to the poor. But 30 years later, we've got just as many poor people, taxes are three times higher, and the only thing that's bigger is government. How many times? Do we have to recognize that government's not the answer? How many times do we have to recognize that it's our own greed? It's our own wanting to cut a deal. Hey, if it's out there, I might as well get my share. Thinking that we can actually get something for nothing. Are you kidding me? Come on, we're brighter than that. In 1982... The amount of the debt ratio to our gross domestic product was at 34%. 34% of our gross domestic product was indebtedness. 1991, less than 10 years later, it was up to 64%. 1996, our debt will exceed our gross domestic product because our debt is growing three times faster than our economy. Why? Because people won't be responsible for their own lives. Because everybody's looking for a handout. Because the church hasn't done its job. You know who ought to be taking care of the poor? The church ought to be taking care of the poor. We know who's poor, what their needs are. We can surround them. We haven't done our jobs. And because we haven't taken care of ourselves. And so we gripe about government. Let me talk for a minute about education. Because education is a part of government. Not only do we expect government to take care of us, but also we expect education to train our kids and make our kids good and make our kids successful. We spend in excess of $80 billion a year on our school systems. And we expect them to do almost everything but teach facts and skills. $80 billion a year to watch the SAT scores go down and the dropout rate go up. Why? Because we've saddled our school systems with responsibilities that only the home can provide and only the church can provide. We've asked them, teach our kids to be good. There was a professor named Grant, excuse me, New York University, who wrote a book called Uh, what we've made out of Hamilton High. And they traced the history of a high school in New York from 1953 to 1987. And the history is reflective of what's happened in the school systems. The history says that in 1953, the worst problems were spit rod throwing and gum chewing. In 1987, there were countless pimps and drug dealers on campus. The principal had a full-time bodyguard and school was regularly called off because of violence. 
Now we take a look at that and we say, why can't the school do better? You know? Why can't the school do better? They ought to be training those kids better. It's not the school's responsibility. It's the school's responsibility to teach them things we can't teach them. It's the school's responsibility to teach them facts. That's a full-time job. Facts and skills. You know, in 1950... 60% of the jobs in this country were filled by unskilled labor, could be filled by unskilled labor. By the turn of the century, that 60% will dwindle down to 15%. Do you think for a minute that the schools can have the time to teach moral values? They've got everything they can do to train our kids to operate the economy. 